Florida is a place of stories. Some stories are darker than others. Mind the libraries of your local town, ask for the tales of those who live near, and you'll find shadows that have been forgotten by time. Everywhere you tread, someone has stepped before you under some other condition, but always with the pervasive heat and unstoppable nature on all sides. Hear the stories of the earliest European colonizers to this place and what they describe is a place of darkness and confusion. Monsters waited in the shadows for them, things that were never understood in their lifetime. And so the stories were passed down of great fanged beasts that hide in the waters, insects that swarm like birds and drain your blood, and waterways that stretch forever, swerving in and out of sight, never to be seen again. And still, when newcomers arrive to our state today, they speak of the same frights that haunted the earliest newcomers to this place 500 years ago. They ponder our alligators, our mosquitoes, our wetlands as things and places foreign to them that they've heard tale of and wondered if those dangers may face them in the unusual, unknowable lands of Florida. But the frightening things are comfortable to those of us who have spent enough time in this swamp, in our cypress forests, in our vacant flooded prairies, in our neon lit parking lots. This place holds mysteries and we welcome them. This season, Wait 5 Minutes becomes Wait Fright Minutes, and we're pondering those mysteries and monsters in our swamps, the unreal mythology, and the frightening reality. This October, we return to discuss horror films that capture our culture, old ghost stories that have been twisted and contorted, classic movie theaters that bring screams to our neighborhoods, and even hear some haunted tales from you. This peninsula is filled with mysteries, it always has been. As the days get shorter and the nights get colder, let's dive into our favorite annual tradition, Wait Fright Minutes. This week, we begin in reality, a horror movie about life during wartime set right here in Florida, inspired by a horror legend. On April 17, 1959, an ad ran in the paper for a special event playing in town, a ghost-a-thon. On page 42 of the Fort Lauderdale News, deep in the entertainment section, it took up nearly half the page. It was an advertisement for the Florida Theater, a theater that ran from 1939 to 1965 on Las Olas Boulevard in the heart of Fort Lauderdale. The ad was eye-catching, intentionally, with a giant skeleton gracing its page and a horror icon as well, Vincent Price, glaring out at the page with a candle in his hand. I will now point out briefly that Vincent Price and I share the same birthday. What an honor. Anyway, the event advertised was one I wish I could have attended. One movie seemingly played for 36 hours straight in one theater on one screen. According to the ad, there were several events throughout the 36-hour marathon. And don't worry, there's free coffee and donuts at the screening in the middle of the night in case you need a little pick-me-up. But the ad was riddled with ominous warnings about the contents of the movie you were about to see. Here are just a few of those warnings. Quote, Consult your doctor. Bring your seatbelts. See it with someone with warm hands. End quote. I don't know what that last one means. I think meaning the cold hands would scare you, make you think it's a ghost, or I don't know. Anyway, here's another quote. Quote, Legal notice. Attend at your own risk. We will not be responsible for any nervous breakdowns, heart attacks, or fainting. Registered nurse in attendance. End quote. That's... <laughs> 
It's a bit dramatic. This last one changed from location to location. It, it would be whatever town it was. I found another one that said Bradenton, another one that said Tampa, but the one from this newspaper I'm citing, it reads, quote, This special Emergo performance will not, cannot be shown in any other theater in Fort Lauderdale, end quote. All of the other statements were gimmicks, of course, meant to terrify the audience, make them think that this, perhaps, could be the most terrifying experience of their lives, the most terrifying film ever made. But the statement about Emergo, whatever that is, is accurate. No other movie had ever done anything like it before. It was created for that movie, the one playing in that 36-hour marathon in Fort Lauderdale. The movie is a horror classic, House on Haunted Hill. Starring Vincent Price, House on Haunted Hill is about a millionaire, played by Vincent Price, who invites five people to a haunted house. If they can survive the night, he will give them $10,000. The connective tissue of these five individuals is slowly revealed as a mysterious and apparently supernatural phenomena begin occurring. There's one moment in the movie where a spectral woman sort of appears from the darkness, and I've seen a lot of scary movies, and weirdly, this cheesy movie scared the hell out of me at that one scene. It's, it's pretty freaky. Vincent Price plays that millionaire with his usual rich, ridiculous charm, if you've never seen a Vincent Price movie, this is the one to see. With his distinct voice, his sharp mustache, his withering gaze, Price is the perfect horror lead. I've seen half a dozen Vincent Price movies, and all of them are entirely elevated by his presence. He's just the best. What makes him so charming is he feels like he's in on the joke. He understands the creepy vibes of the movie, but he also seems to be winking at you, leaning into the absurdity of it all. That is the joy of this movie. No wonder Elvira says it's her favorite movie. This movie is what the Emergo gimmick was all about. Emergo? I think it's Emergo, not Emergo. I think it's, em I don't know. It's E-M-E-R-G-O. So here's what that is. During the run of the film, in theaters where it was specifically installed, which included this theater in Fort Lauderdale, the Emergo gimmick would come into play at one specific moment in the film's runtime. In the movie, a skeleton ominously emerges from a vat of acid. As you sat in the movie theater in that moment, a glowing plastic skeleton would emerge from the screen and come flying out over the audience being manipulated by a rope and pulley system. Apparently, the whole movie was written around the idea of including this trick in the first place, a way to make the movie not just 3D, but actually in the theater with you. So when the skeleton would appear on screen, an actual skeleton, well, a plastic glowing skeleton, would appear in the theater with you just to freak you out, make it feel like it's appearing in your reality. The boundary between the screen and the audience was broken. Horror is designed to frighten you, to unnerve you, but what is scarier than feeling like the things on the screen can appear in the theater with you? There's no protection between the fiction and the reality. What could happen next. This sense of unease, the question of whether or not the movie screen could actually protect you from the monsters on the other side, was part of a trend that was growing in horror movies at the end of the 1950s. House on Haunted Hill came out in 1959, and by the next year, Alfred Hitchcock's classic film, Psycho, wouldn't allow people into the theater after the movie started, and apparently, nobody was allowed to leave during the runtime, which was a gimmick meant to heighten as a sort of threat, actually. Why won't they let us leave? Well, what's going on here? Gimmicks like this did an incredible job of making the terror on the screen come into the present. It's just a movie, right? Because what if it wasn't just a movie? What if the horrors on the screen could be real? Well, there is one movie that actually asks that very question. 
What if the terrors on screen were able to pass into reality? What if the things that terrified us came through, not just as a gimmick, but in reality? Well, that is central to the 1993 cult classic Matinee, which just celebrated its 30th anniversary this year. It's about a filmmaker who brings his scary movie to Key West, Florida. The film debuts with a few gimmicks meant to enhance the fear from the audience. The only problem is that the audience is already afraid because the film is debuting in October of 1962. Just as the Cuban Missile Crisis brought new fear into the homes of all Americans, especially here in Florida. Good evening, folks. I am your haunted host this evening, Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait Fright Minutes. For the entire month of October, we'll be exploring the unique relationship between the state of Florida and the horror genre, diving deep into scary movies and haunted tales that can teach us something about our state, our culture, and the things that go bump in the swamp. Tonight's feature presentation, 1993's Matinee, a film about crisis in Florida and the terrifying things that can happen when the movie becomes reality. For the kids of Key West, Florida, there was nothing scarier than a monster matinee. Lawrence Wolsey, the master of movie horror, exterminates you with mad. But in the fall of 1962, a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on the island of Cuba. They got the biggest scare of all. The country is on red alert. And what a perfect time to open a new horror movie. The film, Matinee, became an immediate favorite of mine when I watched it earlier this year. It follows a group of kids in Key West who help a horror film director premiere his unique film at their local cinema as the island is quarantined with the Cuban Missile Crisis keeping the city at a boiling point. The main character, the kid, is a horror fan who needs a distraction. His father is serving in the military and is off the island as the crisis heats up. The film's premiere becomes a whole distraction for him and the town, and a fascinating parallel between the not-so and the all-too-real. At the heart of the film is John Goodman, one of the best, who plays director Lawrence Woolsey. Down on his luck and looking for a hit, Woolsey is traveling the country with his latest picture, a movie called Mant, M-A-N-T. That is a portmanteau of man and ant, a man-ant, or, as it's called in this movie, a mant, <laughs> if you're confused. The plan is to include electric buzzers and other gimmicks to sell the movie to the captive audience in Key West, but the subject of the film within the film involves the fear of a nuclear warhead, which becomes increasingly and uncomfortably familiar to the audience in Key West. They become very afraid of the film as it begins to resemble their own anxieties about the world around him. It's an incredible bit of filmmaking by the director, Joe Dante, who also directed such classics as Gremlins and The Burbs, one of my favorites. He does an incredible job of layering in our own anxieties about the world around us and our anxieties about the things on screen, why one is acceptable and why the other is not. He picked the perfect subject to base this movie around. Lawrence Woolsey, who is played by John Goodman, is inspired by the director of House on Haunted Hill, one of the most beloved and iconic horror directors of all time, the one-of-a-kind William Castle. Born in New York, New York in 1914, William Castle was born William Schloss, his family's German name before Americanizing it. Schloss literally means castle, so William Castle. 
He was reportedly a fan of macabre stories from a young age, the legend being that he saw the great Bela Lugosi play Dracula in a play when William was just 13 years old. Lugosi would, of course, reprise the role of Dracula for Universal Pictures in the early 30s, defining the legacy of that ancient vampire for years to come. According to the story, Castle became a horror fan and pursued it as he became an artist. He directed plays and started directing film noirs in the 40s, directing pulpy detective characters in early franchises, he was essentially a contract director through the 40s and early 50s, directing cheap movies like westerns and epics for Universal. None of the flicks really stand out in film history. The studios of this era would, of course, produce classic movies, but they would also churn out cheap movies with their stock players on their stock sets as an easy means to make some quick money at the box office and sort of pad their bottom line. But William Castle's love of the dark and mysterious didn't go away from his boyhood, and he saw money in the beauty of shock value. We talked about this last year during Wait Fright Minutes, but since the dawn of horror cinema, audiences have flocked toward the sensation of fear, looking for something startling, tantalizing, shocking. Castle's movies weren't exactly high budget, but the gimmicks would bring in the audiences. In fact, sometimes he would spend about just as much as it would cost to make the movie on the gimmicks itself. They were expensive gimmicks. His first major gimmick is perhaps my favorite of them all. It was from a 1958 movie called Macabre a movie about a rich man whose daughter is kidnapped. But the thrill was the promise made on the poster. On the original poster, a box in the corner reads, quote, any member of the audience is insured for $1,000 against death by fright during the performance of this terrifying picture, end quote. <laughs> There's an asterisk at the bottom which adds, quote, except people with a known heart or nervous condition, end quote. This wasn't just hot air. He really did this. They had actual insurance firm at theaters offering life insurance policies. Actually offering life insurance policies. They had actors dressed as nurses in the theater implying you would need medical attention. They had hearses parked outside of the theater. William Castle himself even arrived to the premiere of the movie in a coffin. I mean, the man committed. You got to give him that. The price to make the film was somewhere around $100,000. Sources differ, but the movie made a million bucks in that first year. The gimmick, as ridiculous as it appears to us today, worked, and soon William Castle would bake those gimmicks into the movies in advance. As I mentioned with the Emergo, or the Emergo, whichever, it, it featured the flying skeleton that would accompany 1959's House on Haunted Hill, but another one is from 1960's 13 Ghosts, in which the theater would give you special quote-unquote illusiono glasses that would allow you to see the ghosts on screen. It, it was sort of a 3D effect that is actually kind of lost on modern audiences. I've watched the movie, and the ghosts are just sort of there, but imagine you're watching the theater and there's nothing on screen, you know, the living characters are there, and then you you pop on these sort of 3D glasses and then all of a sudden there's a ghost on screen. I mean, it's it's an awesome little bit of, of gimmick and I wish I could have seen that because uh, it's kind of lost in these modern digital transfers of the movie. Perhaps the most relevant gimmick to our feature presentation matinee is the one that accompanied 1959's strangely titled classic, The Tingler. You heard me right, The Tingler. It also stars Vincent Price, who plays Dr. Warren Chapin, a doctor who discovers that there is a parasite called the Tingler that lives in every human. And when a person is afraid, the Tingler gets stronger. But if you scream, the Tingler loses its power, which is a very normal plot for a movie. It's, it's standard. You know, you've heard this before. The film opens with William Castle himself walking on screen and making an announcement to the audience. I'll include a link to the whole clip, but here are some snippets of William Castle opening the movie The Tingler. 
I am William Castle, the director of the motion picture you're about to see. I feel obligated to warn you that some of the sensations, some of the physical reactions which the actors on the screen will feel will also be experienced for the first time in motion picture history by certain members of this audience. At any time you are conscious of a tingling sensation, you may obtain immediate relief by screaming. Don't be embarrassed about opening your mouth and letting rip with all you've got, because the person in the seat right next to you will probably be screaming too. At one point in the film, when a tingler escapes into a movie theater, the screen goes dark for you in the audience. And Vincent Price's character instructs you, the audience, on how to deal with the tingler that may be latched onto you. The fourth wall is gone. He is speaking to you, the audience, now. If you feel the tingler, you must scream. What William Castle so hilariously did to enhance this effect, he attached electric buzzers under certain seats, so when this moment happens in the film, the buzzers would go off and random audience members would shriek in surprise as their seats buzzed beneath them, likely causing the whole audience to go absolutely ballistic. <laughs> I'm going to briefly play a clip of the movie. I have to warn you, there are some, I mean, really frightening screams for a few moments in this clip. So feel free to skip about 15 seconds. I'm only going to play a little bit of it. But you got to hear Vincent Price telling people to scream for their lives. It's pretty funny. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. The tingler is loose in this theater. Scream for your lives. It's here. It's over here. The tingler has been paralyzed by your screaming. There is no more danger. We will now resume the showing of the movie. It's ridiculous and corny in all the best and worst ways, but it worked. It made $2 million, even though the gimmicks increased the budget up to a million dollars in and of themselves. Was it worth it? For William Castle, it seems like it was. But the legacy of those gimmicks, they, they live on, not just in the popularity of those movies to this day, they're still beloved horror classics, but they're also remembered in our feature presentation today, Matinee. One of the gimmicks deployed by the fictionalized version of Castle in this movie is the buzzers. They're used to shock audience members at key points in the film Mant. But they also have John Goodman's character, Woolsey, do an introduction akin to the William Castle clip that I just played for you. Here is John Goodman in character introducing his movie. See if you can track all the parallels. Yes, the atomic bomb is terrible. But more terrible still are the effects of atomic mutation. Hello, I'm Lawrence Woolsey. And I want to warn you about something that could happen. Something that does happen in my newest motion picture. Yes, these terrible events could happen in your town, in your home, and they will happen in this theater, in Atomovision, the new motion picture miracle that puts you in the action. Lawrence Woolsey, the master of movie horror. As hilarious as that clip is, it presents a frightening language. I want to warn you about something that could happen happen. Later on, Woolsey says the film is presented in quote-unquote Atomovision, not a real term that Castle used, but still, it pays homage to how present 
radiation and atomic bombs were in B-movies of the late 50s and early 60s, even as the Cold War raged on, it was on people's minds, and we were turning it into hilarious and ridiculous sci-fi and horror movies. The threat of bombs was very real in that period. I mean, if you've seen any movie from that era that talks about that, you were learning duck and cover. That's that's the way that life was. And at the same time, you can go to the theater and see a movie about a guy who turns into a man ant because he was hit with nuclear radiation. I mean, not actually. That's a fake movie. But still, you, you get what I mean. But Woolsey said it chillingly at the beginning of the movie matinee before the Cuban Missile Crisis begins. He is here to warn you about something that could happen. In the plot of matinee, that becomes a grim omen the cuban missile crisis soon begins and what could happen suddenly becomes what will happen so what was the cuban missile crisis in october of 1962 61 years ago this month the cold war reached perhaps its most pivotal turning point ever since the end of the second world war the tensions between the united states and the soviet union remained heightened Suspicion and anxiety prompted the Red Scare, the space program, and would soon launch the Korean War, which was a proxy war between the two powers, and the Vietnam War would soon be another proxy war of the larger Cold War between the USSR and the United States. But at the heart of this anxiety, this international tension, was the threat of ballistic missiles. It goes back to 1960, when Eisenhower was still president, when in May of that year, the Soviet premier, Nikita Khrushchev, promised to send Soviet missiles to the island of Cuba. The U.S. learned that the missiles were moving in July of 1962, and as summer came to a close, the anxieties were proven true. A U.S. spy plane reported a ballistic missile on the launching site in Cuba. President John F. Kennedy acted swiftly, sending a blockade around Cuba to prevent further missiles from reaching the island. That was October 22nd. There were still Soviet ships in the water, though they did avoid the U.S. Navy ships that were quarantining Cuba. For a few days, nobody really knew what was happening. In a famous scene of my favorite TV show, Mad Men, Don Draper says, quote, If the world's still here on Monday, we can talk, end quote. This reflects that very tense anxiety of the nation in this moment. Could nuclear war just be moments away? Through those days in October, nobody had the answers. Key West is less than 100 miles from Cuba. The U.S. Navy has had a presence on Key West as far back as 1823. Let me make sure you understand that year. Not 1923, 1823, 200 years ago. Can you believe that? It was to combat pirates back then. That is an episode for the future, my goodness. But after World War II, the military bases on Key West were essentially subsidized into the U.S. Naval Air Station. As the Cold War ramped up, focus increased on making that air station a first line of defense, equipping it with radar and training facilities, and they'd eventually get anti-aircraft missiles when the Cuban Missile Crisis came into play. The reconnaissance flights over Cuba were launched from Key West, and there was even suggestion that if the United States were to have invaded Cuba, the first point of attack would have launched from Key West. If Cuba were to launch a missile, Key West could have been the first logical target only 90 miles between them. Here's a report on life in Key West at that time from the Key West Historic Marker Tours website. They say that on October 23rd of 1962, the town of Key West essentially became a military encampment. 
Quote, Barbed wire, machine gun positions, and missiles were positioned at strategic locations and beaches throughout the island. End quote. The town was overrun with military personnel, with buildings being dedicated to the Army and Navy and Air Force that roared in. Quote, in a matter of days, military personnel on the island increased from 3,000 to 15,000. End quote. Astronomical. That is an unbelievable increase. Additionally, the entire roadway that leads to Key West from Miami, US-1, running all the way through the Florida Keys, was overrun with security and armed guards. It was tense, and nobody felt it more in America than the residents of Key West. But by October 28th, things were reaching a chilly end. Nikita Khrushchev said the missiles were to be removed from the island of Cuba, and despite a few close calls of conflict, and even some actual exchanged violence, things reached a calm ending. For a moment, the world was on the brink of war, and Key West was one side of the front line. There's a scene in Matinee where the main character talks to his little brother about being scared, and they talk about the good kind of being scared, and the bad kind of being scared. There's the good kind in the movies, and the bad kind when your country is about to enter war. That duality comes into sharp focus for the residents of Key West in this movie. There's the good kind of scared, packed into a theater, monsters flashing on the screen, shrieking with your friends and neighbors, laughing with your fear. And there's the bad kind of scared, like when your father could be in the midst of a nuclear war, or you could be too. I highly recommend that you watch this movie. There is a moment near the end where a town resident watching the film Mant has the barrier literally broken in front of him. He can't tell if the atom bomb that he is seeing is real or not. It's stunning and really scary, if I'm being honest with you. That, for me, is one of the many reasons why I'm always so fascinated with horror as a genre, especially as a history lover. They're so connected. All of art changes with the time in which it is made. It reflects the culture of the moment. But horror feels like a genre that is not only reflecting the styles and tastes of each era that it's made, but also reflects something deeper. It reflects the very things that are frightening humanity at the moment that that film or story is made. I think the peaks of horror throughout the years indicate that precisely. Horror always reaches new heights when our world is facing unknown anxieties and undefined fears. The peaks of horror as a genre, they're telling. The first real peak is in the 1930s, the valley between two world wars as the Great Depression leaves its scars. That is when the monster movie craze begins, the gothic horrors, with questions about the evils of humanity. Do we all hold evil within us? Then through the late 50s and early 60s, the nuclear age brings about aliens from outer space and monsters disguised as your neighbor. Just think of the Twilight Zone. Horror becomes about who you can trust as the Red Scare grips us as a nation. The Cold War obviously continues through the decades to follow, leading to the next real peak, arguably the peak of horror cinema, the 1980s. Franchise horror ruled the 80s. Violence and chaos became the norm. Anxiety and fear, a part of everyday life. It's normal now. So how about another sequel? And now, in the last 10 years or so, we've hit what I see as another peak. Just as our culture is reckoning with so many things, our own histories, asking questions about our identities, and facing even more existential fears than generations before us, on top of the threat of worldwide war, we've also got the fear of climate emergency and the internet's impact on our day-to-day -day lives. There's so many things to scare us nowadays, and that is reflected in the existential fears in the movies. Movies about grief and loss and trust and great big monsters that can't quite be defined. Monsters that look a hell of a lot like us. 
I don't mean to be down or bleak. I'm not trying to say that the world is spiraling towards darkness because clearly they felt that in the 30s and the 50s and the 80s. The world is a scary place and it always has been a scary place and horror has always been there to bring us, weirdly, a bit of relief. It's cathartic. It's comforting. It's a bit of control over being afraid. When the world is scary all the time, everything you experience can frighten you. Horror gives you a sense of peace. A release, in a way, to vent out those fears. Just like the movie Matinee talks about, the good kind of fear and the bad kind. This is fear on our terms. When you pop in Halloween, The Duke, Get Out, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, It Follows, any of the sequels, Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream, any horror movie that you love, you are getting to control what scares you for that 90 minutes in which you're watching that movie. The real world can't scare you. Because, look, there's Ghostface or Michael Myers or Vincent Price. <laughs> For that moment, you're in control. When William Castle's skeleton comes flying out of the screen, the horror crosses the threshold into the world. But don't worry, it's a plastic skeleton. Remind yourself, it's just a movie. Thank you so much for listening to this first episode of our new season and the first episode of 2023's Wait Fright Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or send the show to someone who you think needs a little bit of Halloween spooky stories in their lives. I have got some really awesome stories waiting for you. Next week, we're going to be talking about ghost stories and UFOs. Man, I am so excited. You're going to love next week's episode. It honestly creeped me out writing it. So if you're looking for some spooky scaries, please tune in next week and share this episode if you want to learn a little bit more about some of my favorite bits of horror history. Thank you for listening. I will include some pictures of those ads and Vincent Price and all of these incredible gimmicks that were run and some pictures from Matinee, all sorts of things on the Instagram and Facebook at WFM Pod. You could send me an email. What's your favorite horror movie? Do you have a spooky Florida story you want to tell me? Have you seen a ghost or a UFO or something unusual happened in Florida that you want to tell me? Please reach out to me at WFMPod at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you and I would love to include your story on the Halloween special of this show. All of the music used in this episode was originally composed. I do not own the rights to the videos that are used in this episode. I included some clips from Matinee and some clips from House on Haunted Hill and some clips from The Tingler. I do not own the rights to those, but please go watch those movies. They are so, so good. And the creators and their descendants always get a little kick up this time of year. I'm certain because everybody loves a little, uh, a little scary <laughs> effect from Vincent Price. But Matinee, cannot recommend it enough. Thank you. All right, like I said, next week we are back with the ghost lights of Florida. Are they UFOs? Are they ghosts? Or are they swamp gas? And what exactly is swamp gas? We're going to be talking about that all episode next week. I'm very much looking forward to it. Until then, be good to yourself. Be good to others. Drink more water. Go gator. Muddy the water. And have a very happy October. See you next week. Is that good? Have a spooky week. Go read a ghost story. I'm disappearing like a ghost.